Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, putting an end to mask shaming, the importance of letting kids be kids, and Ezra Levant on his new book, China Virus. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Well, my friends, I'm ashamed to say that the unthinkable has happened. Andrew Scheer has committed an act of such evil and horror that I don't even want to do an introduction to the show. I have to get right to it. He sat in an airport lounge without wearing a mask. I know. (laughs) I know. It's just so terrible. How can anyone do such a thing? Oh, give me a break. From the federal government that for uh, weeks wouldn't even shut down the border, uh, said masks were not something that anyone should wear, uh, to now have the mainstream media shaming Andrew Scheer and a bunch of people that Andrew Scheer was waiting at an airport with for not wearing masks is something that I, I cannot muster an ounce of concern about. This is the story. CBC ran wild with it. They had these little uh, sneaky cell phone shots from multiple angles, so we can do like a full uh, Zapruder analysis here of this, of multiple angles showing that Andrew Scheer was at one point sitting in the uh, lounge at the gate at Pearson Airport in Toronto, and he had his mask uh, pulled down around his neck, as did Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister, as did three other people with whom they were sitting in a socially distanced fashion waiting for a, a flight to probably Ottawa, because I know Andrew Shear had a, a press conference there today. So let's get the obvious right out of the gate. Yes, it is a rule that at the airport in the post-security area and the pre-security area, you have to wear a mask, and you're allowed to take it off to eat or drink, but taking it off to have a conversation is not one of the rules uh, permitted under the uh, Pearson Airport guidelines for this. So I'm not saying that what he was doing was in the right. I, I'm saying that the mainstream media's obsession about this and, and liberal Twitter's obsession about this is highly disproportionate in a country where mask usage has only been advised for really a couple of weeks. Remember, for the most part, uh, it was the opposite that we were being told to do. So the idea that we would not only encourage mask usage, but publicly shame people who don't wear them now after all of the mixed messaging on this is is just absurd. And yes, there's a a political bias as well. Stephen Taylor, who's a a conservative uh, tweeter, had pointed this out that I think it was Rosie Barton had uh, tweeted twice about Andrew Scheer's mask in the span of time uh, that she didn't mention Justin Trudeau's Wii scandal even once. And we'll talk about Wii very shortly, but You know, for Andrew Scheer, who's an outgoing conservative leader, who's not been one of the ones beating the drums, telling people, oh, you've got to wear a mask, for him to now be the story because of this, I I find to be absolutely pathetic. And it's not about the right or the wrong. It's about the level of attention that something so insignificant has gotten. And that now we're at the point, as I mentioned, uh, I think it was two shows ago, when we're public, publicly shaming or in, in some jurisdictions like Toronto now prosecuting people for not wearing a mask, we're losing sight of the entire dialogue here. 
And listen, the whole point about masks, which I think are, are demonstrably positive things in terms of what they did in South Korea, what they did in Taiwan, what they did in Japan, I, I think that masks themselves, especially if deployed early, have a significant role. But the whole point about it, even now, is that the government, which has been encouraging people to go to protests and stuff like that, says wear a mask when you cannot exercise proper social distancing. And that's an important distinction. Wear a mask when you can't exercise proper social distancing. You look at those uh, chairs at the airport, they have every other chair uh, barricaded off, basically, or, or with a sign that says don't sit on it. So they're socially distanced. If you're walking around a store and you're going to keep your six feet between you and everyone else, I don't see why you need a mask. And, and that's why, for the most part, I haven't worn one except where I've been required to, which has only been a, a couple of occasions. And I know I'm going to have to uh, when I'm traveling next week. And, and look, I'll wear it. I'll do my part because I, some things aren't worth a fight. But I am going to pick a fight with the people that are uh, picking a fight with others when they are not impacted or affected in the least by what's happening. And this is the, the big problem now. So we know CBC's bias. It's fairly transparent, and I don't mean that in a, in a positive way. But the level of attention here, and, and again, if you, you even contrast and compare how much Justin Trudeau has been asked about we with you know how much Andrew Scheer is going to be asked about the mask. And, it's, you know, listen, it was like right out of the gate. This is what Andrew Scheer had to answer about when he was speaking about the economic and public health uh, effects of coronavirus and all the things that are happening in Canada. You want to bet that that was what the media wanted to talk about? No, they wanted to talk about masks. Let's roll this clip. Hi, it's Annie Bergeron Oliver with CTV National News. Um, masks became mandatory yesterday in many cities across Canada, yet yesterday you were photographed at the airport not wearing a mask. Elizabeth May earlier today said she does not believe that you take this pandemic seriously. So one, I'm wondering why you didn't wear a mask. And two, what do you say to people like Elizabeth May who say you're not taking the pandemic seriously? So uh, I don't have anything to add based on the story yesterday. Nothing? <laughs> I think it was pretty self-explanatory yesterday. I know that in part of the statement, you said you took off the mask to make a call. Um, Pallister has since come out saying he apologized that, yes, he took it off for a call, but he wanted to chat uh, with some of his colleagues. Should you not be setting an example for Canadians? There are many people who do not believe that masks should be mandatory. Should you not be setting an example for Canadians and, and nothing else to add? As I said yesterday, I was wearing a mask while I was traveling, so I don't have anything else to add to that story. It's hard to believe that this is actually your question and your follow-up when we're dealing with a prime minister that is under an investigation for ethics violation for the third time. We're dealing with $300 billion worth of deficit with no recovery plan, with no budget this year. And you want to know how long I had my mask off yesterday after making a phone call? Come on, that's ridiculous. I think the, <laughs> I think the picture's pretty self-explanatory. I think my... My answer yesterday was pretty self-explanatory as well. And if you want to go like analyze social media uh, pictures, if you're looking for some kind of Zapruder film to break down frame by frame, I think that's pretty ridiculous and kind of a wasted opportunity today when we're talking about an economic snapshot today that's going to tell Canadians how the next few months and years are going to roll out when we have the highest unemployment rate in the G7. We're the only G7 country to have experienced a credit downgrade. 
And that was at a press conference Wednesday morning, uh, just one day after Mask Gate, which, of course, uh, Toronto Pearson Airport decided to add some fuel to the fire. They tweeted a link to the CBC story and said, everyone has a role to play in maintaining our healthy airport. We understand there may be a need to briefly eat or drink, but we expect all passengers and workers to follow the rules. Now, when you are the size of a blimp as I am, it's actually very good because they give you the uh, ca- they give you the caveat there. If you're eating or drinking, you can take off your mask. So basically, what you do is you get like one of those uh, American Starbucks. I think they're called Trenta size, thirty ounces of, of uh, something, and you just walk around and you have like a giant hoagie in the other hand. And no matter what, you always just have one of them <laughs> have one of them at your mouth, and you're completely fine. As like, that's the loophole, everyone. If you're eating or drinking, you can take your mask off which kind of reinforces the absurdity of it all because, look, people are, are going to be eating and drinking. They're going to be pulling them on and off. And that was one of the things that public health officials said early on, which is that, oh, well, as long as you're not touching the mask, maybe it, it would be helpful. Well, if you're taking it off to eat and drink, what are you doing? You're pulling it down, eating, putting it up, and, and so on. So uh, the, the, the question that I would raise here to anyone who's in, involved in mask shaming is do you really want to go down this road of furthering a snitch culture, which is what we started to see happen earlier on in the pandemic when all these bylaw officers were encouraging everyone to snitch out their neighbors for having a backyard barbecue, for you know not socially distancing on the sidewalk, for going to a park, for, for doing all of these other things. And that was a, a really... I don't want to say scary, but it was a really concerning few weeks in Canada when that was the norm. Busy bodies with nothing better to do, uh, turning and rolling over on their neighbors who aren't even really hurting anyone. That's the, the problem here. People that aren't even really hurting anyone. And if you are maintaining your distance, if you're keeping apart from everyone, if you're doing everything right, at this stage in the game, if you don't wear a mask, that's on you. And, and if we start to go down this road where we're mandating it, we're not going to like what happens because it, it's going to become a more and more permanent fixture of society, not just throughout this pandemic, but in flu seasons and beyond. And I, I saw someone that I know, and I, I don't remember where I saw it. I saw it on my Facebook or Twitter, and I, I couldn't find it again. But someone who had said that they see a lot of crossover among anti-vax people and anti-mask people. And they say it has nothing to do with science or facts or health, but it has everything to do with people not being told what to do and not liking being told what to do. And they were saying this as a, as a negative. They were saying this to criticize, to which I say, you know, I don't think not being, uh, not enjoying being told what to do by government is a vice. I think that's a virtue in a free society. People that are, whose first instinct is to question authority when authority starts hammering down down and sending down orders. So I, I don't see that as a negative. I see that as a positive. And in many respects, I see that as a moral imperative in a free society, although one that's harder and harder to come up with. Look, we saw this week, Doug Ford is going to extend emergency COVID-19 powers into next year. And this is something that uh, Doug Ford said on Tuesday. He says, it's not a power grab. He's not into big government. It's there to help people. And that may be fine, but for the most part, this have been uh, this has been extending a little bit at a time, you know, a couple of weeks here, a month there, and now he's looking to extend into next year, and for something that would have gone on now a full year, 
a full year it would have been because this all started in January, February and really ramped up in March. And anytime politicians have emergency powers in place, the checks and balances required on those are monumental, but they are also harder and harder to enforce. And look, I I like Doug Ford. I get along with him. This is not an anti-Ford or Ford derangement uh, syndrome criticism here. Rather, it's a recognition that it's easy for politicians to get addicted to the power, and it's easy for politicians to, in the name of expediency, bypass democracy. And this is what was happening with Justin Trudeau wanting to suspend parliament. Even if it comes with good intentions, we know that proverbially, proverbially those are the things that pave the road to hell. So for politicians of any party, of any level of government to say, well, you know, we're just going to extend our emergency powers and it lets us keep getting things done and it's helping people and saving people and all of that. I'm looking as as the libertarian and saying, all right, well, what are you going to do to check that power? And, you know, if anything, the more we go on and get back to normal, even in a a minor or muted way, the less justifiable it is to have any emergency powers because you have functional legislatures and parliaments. I mean, as much as any parliament or legislature can be functional, but you have a democratic body that is able to be at the table and able to be managing and, and executing these things. So the idea that governments would be uh, relying on emergency orders when the emergency part of the pandemic is no longer. I would not say that in Canada, we are in an emergency situation right now. Canadians can travel abroad. Uh, Canadians have mobility for the most part between provinces. Canadians are getting back to work. Despite the fact that there are still cases, we've had a number of zero case days in a number of jurisdictions. So this is not an emergency anymore, even if it is a situation we take seriously. So why are lawmakers still able to invoke emergency powers, which by their definition are meant to be temporary, they're meant to be for exceptional circumstances, and they are meant to be only in situations where the slow speed of democracy would cause there to be jeopardy for other people. That is no longer the case. So Abby Deshman, who's a lawyer with the Civil Liberties Association, said is deeply concerning. She said, you know, they're leaving the label of an emergency behind while keeping the emergency powers. And that's a great way of looking at it. So we have the powers without the emergency, and that's not a recipe for democracy. That's not a recipe for transparency. So even though Doug Ford has said he doesn't think they'll be in place by the 2022 election, the fact that that is right now on the table that an election in two years, well, you know, maybe maybe we'll have emergency powers in place by then. We need to start pushing back if it looks like we're headed towards what I've called the permanent emergency, the permanent lockdown, because that is not going to be good for anyone. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens who have been listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. I'm Carol Baskin at Big Cat Rescue. And be sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. As somebody who puts out a daily diary, I do that at SaveTheCats.com. Nope, SaveTheCats.org. <laughs> I don't even know my own address. I know how important it is for people to subscribe because we all get busy. And oh my gosh, 
things have been so busy at the sanctuary at Big Cat Rescue. And so if you're not subscribed, you might miss something and you don't want to miss any of the episodes at the Andrew Lawton Show. So be sure and subscribe at andrewlawtonshow.com. Stay cool, kittens. There, did you like that promo? I meant to play it on Monday show and uh, forgot to. That is uh, Carol Baskin telling you all what I've been telling you to listen to the Andrew Lawton Show and to subscribe to the podcast. And you can head to andrewlawtonshow.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or all of these other platforms. If there's one that you like that we don't have, we don't have a link to, let me know and we'll get it up, I promise. Uh, <laughs> I, I posted that on Twitter on the weekend. And I got a lot of mixed reaction. A lot of people got the joke. Uh, a few people said, who the heck is Carol Baskin? And if you don't know, you're missing out on one of the greatest exercises in cinematic brilliance since uh, Schindler's List. And other people were like, how dare you? I'm going to tune out if you're getting an endorsement from a murderer. Uh, because, you know, she may or may not have killed her husband. You know, uh, in any case, so uh, that's funny. It's from a, a website called Cameo, and I've used Cameo a couple of times. They have a bunch of people there, and I don't actually know Carol Baskin. I've never met her. That's for the entirety of my interaction with her. And you can get them to like do birthday shout outs or present gifts or whatever for people. And I'm like, oh, you know, I wonder if I just, you know, plug in some information about the Andrew Lawton show if I can get a plug. And, and she did. I'm glad she got my URL right because she got her own URL wrong. But that is, uh, you know, a PSA from your uh, friendly neighborhood. Uh, tiger tamer carol baskin thanks to all of you who got the joke on that and enjoyed that uh, we were talking about masks earlier uh, one scientist says people who refuse to wear masks should be stigmatized the same way as drunk drivers this is from uh, venki ramakrishnan in the royal S society science journal who says that uh, drinking and driving, the great taboo, something that would earn you uh, great scorn and shame, that should be the reaction to people who don't wear a mask. And this is what I mean about the, the level of shaming ratcheting up here to a degree that we just haven't yet seen. And, you know, the way things are going, I'd say it's probably going to be worse than drinking and driving uh, on its current trajectory. But uh, I hope I'm wrong about that. And I hope it's fleeting. But to go back to what I was saying about politicians, the longer politicians are prolonging the emergency aspect or the emergency aspect, uh, the more it's going to justify this sort of behavior from people. So that is uh, where we're headed here, uh, most certainly. Uh, this is a story that I, I find interesting, and, and I want to talk about it for a couple of moments here. Never trust government ever. Like government will overcomplicate absolutely everything. In Gatineau, for example, youngsters in Gatineau, I'm reading directly from the Ottawa citizen here. Uh, Gatineau is, of course, in the, uh, the national capital region, just across the Ottawa River. Youngsters in Gatineau will be able to play more safely on their streets after city council passed a motion to begin a year-long pilot project encouraging free play on 50 residential streets and four blocks throughout Gatineau. Signs will soon be posted on a affected streets to alert motorists of the project, which aims to promote an active lifestyle in a safe, accessible environment. Gatineau is the largest city in Quebec to adopt the plan, but hardly the only one. Okay, I want to just read this again very slowly. A pilot project encouraging free play on 50 
residential streets. Did you know that your children needed the endorsement of government in an experimental pilot project to play road hockey, to play out in the streets, to be children? I didn't know this. I thought this was kind of one of these God-given rights that you just had, this rite of passage as a kid, where you play uh, road hockey, you yell out car, you move the net, everyone plays by the same rules. It's lots of fun. Uh, I didn't realize that government needed to, in 2020, after roads have been around since basically the beginning of time, come up with a pilot project to allow kids to play on roads, as though this is like a novel, progressive, and revolutionary concept. Like, this is in, insane. And, and, and right, you wonder why childhood obesity is so bad. Yes, there's a, a cultural factor at play with, you know, parents that aren't getting their kids outside. But if we have bureaucracies and bureaucrats and bylaw enforcement officers that are actively uh, dismantling the mechanisms by which kids could play outside, uh, so much so that it needs an experimental project with signs and costs and reports and consultants to get them to play outside, we are doing something sorely wrong as a society. And you look at this case in British Columbia. Now, I actually interviewed this father years ago. Adrian Crook is his name, a Vancouver dad who took the government to court over whether his kids could legally take the bus on their own, the city bus. Uh, bylaw went after him. His kids are now 11, 8, 11, 10, and 8, and they needed to take a, a city bus, take public transit to get to school. And it was in 2017 when they were 10, 9, 8, 7, and 5. So it had five children, and they needed to take the kids. And he was writing in, on his blog about having taught the kids to take the city bus, and there were safety in numbers because there were five of them. And then they had child protection get involved because they were uh, riding the bus without supervision. And the dad fought it. And I interviewed him and I should find that old interview because he was a fantastic advocate. And he wasn't like an activist. He was just a dad that knew his kids, that knew the community, that trusted the kids. And also a dad that knew what a lot of parents today don't necessarily know, which is that it's safer to be a child now on the streets, going about doing your own thing than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. So this idea of stranger danger is a grossly overstated risk right now than historically. So the people, I mean, a lot of boomers especially, uh, of their generation, yeah, the problem existed, but it doesn't as much now. So this idea that, you know, it would be horrific to allow your kids on the city bus is just not consistent with crime rates or, or anything else. So uh, Adrian Crook went public, he was blogging about the issue, went to court, covered costs, and now he has won. So this was at the BC Court of Appeal. They found that the province overstepped its authority when they ordered him to supervise his children. Now, whether this is going to go uh, up to the Supreme Court of Canada, I don't know. Uh, it was the lower court that actually upheld the provinces, so th this comes after last year, he lost at the lower court level in, in the Supreme Court of BC. But I'm a big proponent of, of free-range kids. Lenore Skenazy has done a lot of work on this, uh, basically letting kids be kids, letting kids be independent, and ultimately not coddling them to the point that they aren't able to have any independence, which is why I say this man doesn't deserve to be prosecuted. He deserves a medal for doing something that a lot of parents are afraid of or don't know they have a right to do. 
Uh, and when you you know contrast this with the story out of Gatineau, where kids are not even able to play in the street without the permission of government, apparently, I think this is something that desperately needs to be moved in a different direction. And it, it's all over the map. It, it's not just about public transit here or, or road hockey here, but about what sort of play is allowed at school, about you know roughhousing and the approach that a lot of uh, people are taking now, which seems to be coming back in the right direction. Uh, many people have read that New Zealand uh, school who decided they were going to suspend all rules at recess, basically. And if you want to roughhouse, you can. If you want to play uh, play fight, you can. If you want to run around, get dirty, you can. And they basically just said, hands up, we're going to just not uh, get involved in a lot of these things unless we have to. Uh, and then there was that uh, playground. I think it was in Calgary. It might have been Edmonton. I'm gonna. You're gonna see it up on your screen, and it's gonna be correct because the little secret of the show is that we do that afterwards. I think it was Calgary though, where they did. It was like a junk playground, basically. They they took just random things, metal, tires, wood, things that you know aren't necessarily kid proof, and they turned that into a playground, which admittedly looked like a trailer trash uh, front yard, but at the same time, it also was just teaching kids to navigate risk themselves, to navigate the risk in the world. And on one hand, you know, it's funny that a lot of the people that are trying to say that kids can handle complex uh, things like gender identity and, you know, really advanced sexual education from a young age are the same people that are saying a kid can't ride a city bus or a kid can't, you know, play tag with a bit of force in the push uh, without being protected by adults. And it's amazing how uh, the two work uh, against each other. Either the kids are, are able to handle complex things and able to navigate the world themselves, or they can't. And I think they definitely can. And more importantly, I think we need to be encouraging that uh, very actively. We have to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, a lot of the time throughout the coronavirus pandemic, we've been so responsive to the breaking news that we haven't really had a chance to take a step back and look at the big picture and, and some of the major narratives that we've seen here. Well, a new book does exactly that, looking at some of the domestic and global political narratives that have emerged here and, and really painting a picture that I think is a, a very important one. The book must be onto something because there are certain people, including Amazon, that initially didn't want you to be able to buy it. That is China Virus, How Justin Trudeau's Pro-Communist Ideology is Putting Canadians in Danger, written by our friend Rebel Commander Ezra Levant, who joins us on the line now. Ezra, thanks for coming on and congratulations. Uh, Congrats on the new book. My pleasure. You know, I um, I was really scared for a bit there because we have published uh, seven books with Amazon before, both as ebooks and print books, so 14 titles. And we do really well with them, and we do well for them. And we went to upload this book in late April, like two months ago, and they said they rejected it right away. And we said, oh, maybe we entered some, because you do it electronically, mm -hmm. I thought maybe we made an error. So we tried again, they rejected it again. We appealed, they rejected it. We had lawyers, they rejected it. And they said, they actually gave us, they finally gave us a reason. They said because they only propagate, quote, official, unquote, information about the pandemic. And they thought our book would contradict the United Nations. And we said, look, we're not giving medical advice or anything. We're not giving home remedies. But they held the line and for two months, 
Amazon refused to upload the book. They finally relented about a week ago, and the book immediately shot up the bestseller list. It hit number one on Kindle. It hit number two in the whole country for paperbacks. So obviously people want the other side of the story. I just find it terrifying that Amazon, which has so many books and we rely on for so many things, was literally running interference for the United Nations. Not only, for, it, it wasn't even applying Canadian law. Like if they were to say, Ezra, your book is defamatory or hate speech or whatever, mm -hmm. okay, that's the real thing maybe. But they were running errands for the UN. And I think that's part of the problem here. We criticize the UN and the World Health Organization. And as you mentioned, my subtitle is Justin Trudeau's support for pro-communist ideas. I mean, I'm not saying that Trudeau himself is a communist, but he sure seems to love them, whether it's Cuba or China. And I think we're at real risk from China. Cuba, we don't have a lot of ties with Cuba. People go there for a vacation. But with China, we have tremendous political and economic and diplomatic ties. I think that's the real China virus. Thank God the pandemic is almost over. If you look at the number of people dying, it hasn't been this low since March. I really think the health threat has receded, but it has exposed the political and economic and diplomatic and military and cybersecurity threats of China. That's the China virus. I wanted to ask you about the timing of this, because if this was something that you had initially submitted two months ago, do you think it was premature? Do you think that we were able to see all of the political narratives unfold then that haven't really changed now? Well, I, I, I mean, during those two months, I updated it. And when they finally uh, proved it, I, I mean, you can see there's things in the book that uh, are as late as June. And I went back and I updated some numbers mm -hmm. and some things. And there, there were, there, I mean, I wasn't just sitting around in those two months. But um, listen, it was a little unclear for everyone in those first weeks, how bad is the problem? Uh, how does the virus spread? Are we all at risk? We, we just simply didn't know a lot of things, and it was risky to trust China. China, which, like the Soviet Union and Chernobyl, was more interested in covering up mm -hmm. than exposing and asking for help. Uh, also, how China dealt with it, China's a brutal authoritarian regime. The idea that they would simply, actually in some cases, weld the doors shut to people in quarantine, like turn apartments into prisons, that's how China rolls. So we didn't really know a lot. And here we are on the other end now. And we know, for example, in all of Canada, there has only been a single person under the age of 20 who has died from this disease. And that person had pre-existing conditions, had terminal diseases anyway. So this is not a disease that affects children. Um, the annual death toll from the flu and pneumonia is every year between 7,000 and 9,000 people in Canada. That's what this virus death toll is. We learned, we've learned a lot about it. And so now some of the government overreactions seem even more absurd, like closing schools when kids don't get sick from it, or if they get sick, it's very mild, and thank God they all recover. So we've learned a lot about uh, closing borders. The, the places in Canada that had the least um, virus outbreaks were the ones that were the least connected to global travel. And one of the things we document in the book is how Trudeau actually never stopped flights from China. Uh, they came every day during the peak of the crisis. Uh, over a million Chinese citizens have visas to come to Canada. They were issuing new ones all the time. Mm. 
um, there were special exemptions for anyone who claimed to be a refugee, even if at Roxham Road, even if they said, even if they had a cough and a fever, they were specifically by executive order of, uh, of, of Trudeau allowed to come in. So there's a lot of strange things in there. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit off, off target, but yes, we did learn things over the course of the last four months. It's been, I think, 113 days today since Ontario went into a two-week emergency mode. Remember that? Two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, we're on day 113 of that. Well, it's funny I, you I mention to... that because I remember when uh, that when 9/11 happened, and and you know a lot of the the left response to it uh, afterwards. There was that famous footage. I think Michael Moore had popularized it of you know George Bush just sitting in the classroom doing nothing as uh, the time passed from when he was notified. And and uh, you know it's funny that you know Justin Trudeau sat on vacation for days and days and days and did nothing. And there was very little criticism from the mainstream media in, in that. And you actually had laid this out very early in the book, uh, you know, even when Ontario public health officials had sort of uh, alerted themselves and, and leapt into gear federally, there was no response whatsoever. And what I find so interesting is that we've seen almost an inverse reaction from the federal government, where earlier on when a swift response was needed because we didn't know what we were dealing with, there was none. And now that things have leveled out, now that things have become a bit more measured and we have more information, we have more data, the federal government is continuing to ramp up its response on, on domestic uh, domestically. Yeah, uh, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, right now in the city of Toronto, for example, masks are mandatory in pl public places. Mm -hmm. All right, well, where was that? Where was that in March and April? You're, uh, you're correct to, to point out um, that when, I remember that first case in Ontario, because it's not often that you have sort of a panicky press conference on a weekend mm -hmm. by government officials. They normally don't do that. So they were taking it seriously. The virus had arrived in Toronto. Um, a guy flew in from China, was sick on the plane. There was a manhunt for the other 30 people near him on the plane. It was really panicky. The next day, all the newspapers were panicky. Um, Trudeau was taking a personal day. I went back and I, I added up how many days Trudeau was away from Canada since he became PM. He loves to travel. He loves to take personal days. He, he takes long, long vacations. He had a 17-day vacation in Costa Rica. Seven, what was the last time you had a 17-day vacation? Then he got back to Canada. The virus broke. And uh, a week and a half later, he left on another junket to Africa, where he was going to hand out foreign aid to try and get a UN vote. So in the period of time when the virus was arriving in Canada and starting to spread, when the airport... And Trump, by the way, six days later, Trump restricted flights from China. Trudeau waited six more weeks because he was busy flying around. He, he didn't want to make any tough decisions. He wasn't engaged in the news. Trudeau took more days off, more foreign trips, more vacations in the period of the virus arriving in Canada than at any other time in his five and a half wow. years as prime minister. Yeah, and he I, was still I went campaigning back and for that up. UN Security Council seat. Yeah, and by the way, it was... Uh, it was on that trip where he announced, uh, on that campaign trip, where he announced he was giving our our uh, personal protective equipment stockpile to China. Mm -hmm. So he he was thinking about the virus, but how can I give money to foreign countries? How can I how can I give Chinese-made protective gear back to China? He wasn't thinking about Canada, 
And it's so, so strange. And you know, there's one more thing. There's a lot of things I cover in the book. And I hope we can talk about his ties to the Chinese Communist Party, because that's actually what I mean by China virus. But it's, it's so odd how lackadaisical he is. He's been self-hiding, I call it, in Rideau Cottage. He just the other day announced he's not going to meet Trump and the Mexican president. They're having a face-to-face. Trudeau won't go. Mm-hmm. He just won't. He's, he's become a hermit, you know, a recluse. Really, the only time he leave, left is to do the Black Lives Matter take a knee on Parliament Hill. He's the only world leader who's in hiding. I mean, he, he has no medical risk. He hasn't been diagnosed with anything. A few months ago, his wife had the, the virus, but that was months ago. He doesn't even live with her anymore. Um, I think he's mentally checked out, and he's, he's childish. In the middle of this whole thing, when we're all in lockdown, uh, he celebrates Earth Hour. <laughs> and he says, hey, everybody, turn off your lights and your power. Yeah, we've been under house arrest, mate. We've been living the Earth Hour lifestyle, yeah. <laughs> uh, shutting down the economy. Like he's a, he's a child in, a, in an age where we need men, and it's not changing. I, and the, the media is so submissive, I've never seen anything like Do you think if Donald Trump just went back to Trump Tower in New York City and ordered DoorDash all the time and came out once a day for some blah, 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 do you think the media in America would accept that if, if Boris Johnson just went to his country home and just hid out for 113 days. Do you think the Fleet Street tabloids would be fine with that? It's insane. And it's a combination of a lazy, disinterested prime minister who has deep ties to China and the Chinese Communist Party. And that's a recipe for disaster, not just a health disaster, but an economic and political and diplomatic and security disaster. Let's turn to that ideological component there, because the government's position on China, which you articulate very well in the book, and I know you've been covering it as we have here at True North along uh, the course of of this pandemic, has been very dangerous from Patty Haidu to Francois-Philippe Champagne to Justin Trudeau himself. And when it comes to Canada's relationship with China, which has really been, I I think, one of the most revealing and illuminating things throughout this pandemic, I, I would say... In a lot of cases, I would uh, put it as weakness. Now, you're saying there, there's an underlying ideological support for China there that's not just uh, a weakness or, or limp-wristed uh, approach to foreign policy, but a, a specific uh, China issue. I think so. And I start by talking about Justin Trudeau's dad, Pierre Trudeau. And remember, Pierre Trudeau, uh, there was no tyrant he didn't love. He went to uh, Cuba and canoed with Castro. He visited Castro repeatedly. He went to the Soviet Union and said Soviet Siberia was the land of the future. Like, seriously. Um, Pierre Trudeau went to China even before he was prime minister um, to celebrate Mao's revolution. Uh, so Pierre Trudeau was very pro communist, not just pro-China. The, uh, anyone can love China, the people, the culture, the, the history, the, the art, the architecture, the food, even the language is fascinating. There's so many wonderful things about China. It's, it's like a world unto itself. I understand how someone could admire China, but remember when he was asked that day at that liberal fundraiser, what country do you admire most? He said China, but he didn't say all the things I just listed that are wonderful about China. He said the most odious thing about it, which is, quote, it's basic dictatorship. 
And so he's had that in him. And in the book, I, I quote his brother, Alexandra, otherwise known as Sasha Trudeau. His, his brother, Sasha, who was his foreign policy advisor during his leadership campaign, I should remind you. So he's not just a brother, he's a policy advisor, who, by the way, did propaganda films for the, Iran, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. So again, his brother, there's no one, there's no tyrant his brother didn't love. His brother wrote an insane obituary for Fidel Castro in the Toronto Star. It was creepy. Well, and his then there's brother, Trudeau's own, uh, you know, laudatory statement to Fidel Castro. Oh, yeah. But let me tell you one quick thing about Sasha Trudeau. So um, he was writing a little preface to a, a book or something about China. And then it, he said, and he said this in an interview, he said, well, it just grew into a chapter and then it grew into a book. And he had this book about China called um, Barbarians or, or the New Barbarians or something. He was, he was saying that Westerners are the barbarians. Hmm. China is the civilized society. And he published this book. You could, any publisher in the world would publish a book by a Trudeau for vanity reasons, for sales reasons. Any Canadian publisher would publish it in a second. But he deliberately chose to have his book about China published by the Chinese government, hmm. the Chinese dictatorship. And, he, and it's obvious why. He loves working with dictatorships like he did with the Islamic Republic of Iran. He is a pro-China propagandist. The whole book was an apology for communist China. And he specifically said he gave this book to his brother Justin right before Justin Trudeau went to China on the first visit. And obviously, it's solidifying the Trudeau family view that China and its dictatorship is noble, in, in fact, in some ways more noble than we are. So it's, it's pervasive in his family and in his senior staff. I, I, in my book, I argue that uh, Peter Harder, who was the head of a major China lobby group in Canada, he, became, he was put in the Senate by Trudeau, but more important than that, he was in charge of the transition from Stephen Harper to the Trudeau government after Trudeau won in 2015. Harder was in charge of the transition team, which means he was really the boss for hiring hundreds and hundreds of appointees. So you could say it was the most important job because it, mm -hmm. other than choosing the cabinet, you're choosing every single official every top official. Every, so he put in pro-China activists salted throughout the entire government. And, and it's just you know, assumed that you, if you are a Trudeau liberal, of course you're pro-China. And the Chinese government knows this. Like John McCallum took $73,000 worth of free gifts from the government of China. He disclosed them to the ethics commissioner. I'm not, I'm not saying they were illegal. But why would China give 73 yeah. grand worth of gifts to someone unless they thought that guy's an asset? Well, well yeah, and McCallum's downfall was, I think, being too open about his view of China. Yeah, and Huawei, the massive uh, tech company, a rival to Google, um, is a security threat, wants to build 5G's, 5G uh, networks in Canada. They're not allowed under Canadian law to donate to the Liberal Party. So they just back up the Brinks truck and dump money into Canada 2020, which is Trudeau's sort of in-house think tank mm -hmm. affiliated with the Liberal Party run by Trudeau's lifelong friend. So 
there's so much cash being dumped on Trudeau by the Chinese communists. Why they're they're pragmatic people? Why would they do that? They're doing that because they have, to use the phrase, a Manchurian candidate. They have someone who, like even today, front page, big screaming headlines in the Toronto Star. China is threatening retaliation against Canada, yeah, retaliation I saw that. against us, and Trudeau's just fine with it. Yeah, and you know what? For all of the Canadian mainstream media was, uh, you know, carrying U.S. congressional hearings live and uh, talking about Trump and Russia, Trump and Russia, Trump and Russia. Uh, there's very little coverage of the mainstream Canadian media when it comes to Trudeau and China. So I think it's an important book, China Virus, How Justin Trudeau's Pro-Communist Ideology is Putting Canadians in Danger. Author Ezra Levant of The Rebel joining us now. Ezra, where can people uh, pick up a copy? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, or we have a little website called chinavirusbook.com with the Amazon links there. Pretty easy to find. It's on the bestseller list, I'm pleased to say, which tells me people want to hear the other side of the story. They want to hear these yes. other things, and I'm grateful to you for giving me a bit of a platform that Amazon denied me for two months. And you've got a five-star rating on Amazon already, so let's hope we can uh, keep you on that bestseller list. Ezra, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, my friend. Bye-bye. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. That was a great interview. Glad you were able to tune into that. Just before we wrap things up, I have a couple of odds and ends, things that didn't really fit into the show, but things that I had to inject in in some way. So we just kind of just shoved them all to the end and do a little bit of a rapid fire here. So a couple of weeks ago, I, I spoke about J.K. Rowling and, and her battle against the trans radical activists. And she has not just uh, not backed down. She has doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down. She's heptupled down. She's done all of these things. And you know what? She continues to go. And, and J.K. Rowling had a fantastic tweet uh, when someone else was uh, uh, reminding uh, everyone about all of this cancel culture stuff being reminiscent of the McCarthy era. And J.K. Rowling tweeted, uh, Indeed, and to quote the inimitable Lillian Hellman, I cannot and will not cut my conscience to fit this year's fashions. Now, what's interesting here is that J.K. Rowling still continues to be maligned and slandered online. People are calling her every name under the book. And in this case, I think she was, uh, you know, really retweeting uh, someone who is themselves uh, a trans activist that has supported J.K. Rowling. But the one thing that was interesting is that J.K. Rowling has really just resisted it entirely and has come out stronger on the other side. Because despite the fact that everyone in the predictable chorus says she's hateful and a bigot and all of that stuff, which is just plain wrong, uh, her support has grown the longer she has held to her guns. And I, I think that is a, a very important message here in, in pushing back against the cancel mob. Uh, this is a fun one. Sherry DeNovo, who is a, a former member of provincial parliament in Ontario, uh, has, has uh, retweeted someone who uh, does not appear to be a fan of that uh, Victims of communi Communism monument, and she seemed to be supportive 
of the monument being defaced, as we talked about on Monday. That is Nora Laredo. Uh She needs no introduction. Her tweets are, are quite legendary because she's just an unabashed Marxist, uh, which is fine. You know, the world needs a couple of those every now and then, just if nothing else to remind us how crazy they are. Uh, and uh, Sherry Denovo has asked, how can there be victims of a system that's never existed? So as my friend uh, David Clement pointed out, ah, the old that wasn't real communism trick. That's where we are right now, eh? So it's good to know that the NDP is uh, quite unabashedly, not that she's a representative now, but was a, a longtime representative of the NDP, is, is like, ah, you know, we can't say communism had victims because, uh, you know, real communism has never been tried. And if you want to talk about a real a tweet that sums up 2020, this one from The Independent. What the white supremacist roots of biological sex reveal about transphobic feminism. And if you can figure out what that means, well, please do let me know because I sure as heck can't. But basically, uh, what I can glean from this, and I, the, the column's not much better, is that uh, transphobic feminism, so TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, um, are uh, heralding something that is white supremacist. Because when you talk about biological sex, uh, that actually stems back to Britain's colonial past. So all roads lead to colonialism, which uh, unfortunately is getting hit by someone from within the family that was behind most of the colonization. Uh, Harry, the Duke of Sussex, and his bride, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, did an interview speaking about the problematic aspects of the Commonwealth's history. Let's take a look at this clip. Certainly when you look across the Commonwealth, there's no way that we can move forward unless we acknowledge the past. And I think so many people have, have done such an amazing, incredible job of acknowledging the past and trying to right those wrongs. But I think we all acknowledge on here that there is so much more still to do. It's not going to be easy. And in some cases, it's not going to be comfortable. But it needs to be done because guess what? everybody benefits. So I think there's a hell of a lot that we together need to acknowledge, but I only see, I only see hope and optimism in the fact that we, we could only do this together. We have to, in this moment in time, say, we're gonna have to be a little uncomfortable right now mm -hmm. because it's only in pushing through that discomfort that we get to the other side of this and find the place, as you're pointing out, where a high tide raises all ships. Mm. Equality does not put anyone on the back foot. It puts us all on the same footing, which is a fundamental human right. And that's what we're talking about here. Yes, Harry and Meghan in a Commonwealth Trust interview talking about how the Commonwealth has uh, rights, uh, has wrongs that it must right. Uh, and I just think what a disgrace that couple has become, uh, despite being so full of promise initially to the royal family. They have upended tradition, they've upended stability, and they've upended an institution that has managed to stay above politics for virtually the entirety of its modern existence. And, and both the two of them are, are just disgraceful right now. Uh, and lastly, this is a, an interesting one. Scrabble has decided to go woke as well, taking out of tournaments slurs. Now, I didn't realize this. The N-word has been a valid Scrabble word in tournaments, not in the, the one you get from Hasbro, but in tournament play. Uh, so what's had to happen now is people have uh, gone and removed some of these from the player's tournament 
uh, so that they're not traumatizing and victimizing people by, you know, playing down a, a word that's actually a, a racial slur. Uh, evidently, there were 226 offensive terms, including the almighty N-word, that were on the books here. Now, what I found interesting in this New York Times story was a black Scrabble player who was very resistant of this. Uh, and and interestingly, Scrabble is the one place where words don't have meaning. We, we say that words have meaning. In Scrabble, a word is entirely valued based on how many points it gives you. So if you were to play, uh, to be honest, bleep me out here, please, but head is a valuable Scrabble word and is one that I played once just out of a sheer novelty. And it gave me, I think it was like over a hundred points because I would have gotten the seven point, uh, the seven tile bonus. I would have had double or triple words somewhere there. But uh, there's one there's one player here, uh, Noah Liver Noel Livermore, who's a, a black player from Florida, and he says, if I'm going to lose the game playing a different word, then I'm going to use that word. I need to score points, and on that board, they don't have any meaning. So he's saying that it's a numbers game disguised as a words game. He doesn't even flinch when people have used a slur. He says he once used an obscenity against a woman. He apologized, but he said he needed the points. That's the attitude here. So now you've done something that is there to probably appease one or two loud people and in the end has absolutely done nothing to combat racism. But uh, again, it's 2020. It's not what you've done. It's how it looks. And if that doesn't sum up the year, I don't know what does. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the show. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.